0: Folks, it's been over 40 years, and Fangoria Magazine just keeps getting better and better. You know this. We know this. Each issue brings you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical,
1: collectible copy of the magazine for yourselves. Eric, how do people go about doing that? You can go to Fangoria.com right now to sign up for an annual subscription. And because you're a listener of this podcast, you can get 25% off by entering the promo code KingCast at checkout. And hey, while you're out there spending a little money
0: on yourself, why not stop by the new KingCast merch store? We have heard your demands and we have acquiesced to them. The show now has its own storefront on storeenvy.com, the URL is TheKingCast.StoreEnvy, that's E-N-V-Y.com. And right now, we've got a few t-shirts available, one of which has glow-in-the-dark ink that's really cool. Just go there and check it out. We've got men's and women's sizes on these t-shirts, and we have a lot more planned that'll be coming along shortly. Oh, and if you're a subscriber to the KingCast Patreon, you also get 15% off your orders from our storefront in perpetuity.
1: Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad luck,
0: Bad love. Ah! You
2: guys wanna go see a dead
0: body? Well, sometimes, that is is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts, Eric. I am super duper, even more excited than I normally am when I'm introing these shows. And I use the ex- the word excited too many times to introduce the guest we have on the show today. Are you excited? Oh, of
1: course I'm excited. Okay, but but cool. you're you're like a a sixteen year old girl buying a, a ticket for a Beatles concert. Yeah, and, like, it's it's embarrassing. Right
0: it's embarrassing. The the fanaticism. Um, he is the incredibly funny, wildly talented songwriter behind a number of songs that if you were anywhere near social media in 2020, probably got stuck in your head for uh, a few weeks at a time. He's produced an array of those songs for Netflix, Super Deluxe, Tim and Eric and College Humor with a considerable volume of work you can currently find on Bandcamp.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Nick Lutzko. Nick, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, yes. I am very, very, very hyped uh, to talk to you. Every fucking song that you have released uh, via Twitter this year, it is it has been basically the soundtrack to um, this year, which is actually pretty fitting. So I wanted to thank you for that right up front.
2: Well, thank you for uh listening, man. I uh never would have imagined that people would have um followed along this weird uh trail of breadcrumbs crumbs that I've laid out for the internet.
0: <laughs> They've gotten wrapped up into the, the conspiracy theory elements of it. Um yeah. I would also I would also like to say uh a bit of a fuck you because um <laughs> I have woken up so like I'm not exaggerating, so many mornings I wake up and one of your songs starts playing in my head and it's usually like a line or two and it just won't stop and I can't go back to sleep. The work you're doing is so catchy that uh it is virtually inescapable once it's uh entered your skull. That's been my experience with it. Man,
2: wow. I'm so happy to hear that. What's what's kind of I, I kind of experienced the same thing in a very different way in that like I uh like if I'm ever working on these things, uh well well just a little backstory. I typically Like the RNC was kind of the first one where I woke up. I knew I was going to work on something that day. I didn't know what. It was the first day of the RNC. I decided around like 10 a.m. Okay, I'm going to write a song about the RNC. I probably spent like an hour writing lyrics. I started recording the song. uh, Spent a few hours on that. Produce it, mix it, whatever. Shot the video very quickly. And I think I posted it somewhere around 9 p.m. And I got so lucky in that. Um within a few minutes of me posting that, Donald Trump Jr. took the stage and gave his speech. And if you guys recall, he was just extremely coked out or f- red face, sweaty, bulging eyes. And it was like, whoa, this how did this guy do this? So fa- like it was like it corresponded, like coincided with each other, both of them <laughs> yeah. going up at the same time. Um, but anyways, I'm, I'm saying that all just, just to say that, like, I get these ideas and I don't stop working on them until they're done. And any any time I can't get that out within the I, I try to get the idea in the morning and get it out that night. But um, that one was like 50 seconds long. So some of the more recent ones have a lot more lore is what people have been calling it. And uh, Are, you, are uh,
0: you starting with a melody first or just an overall gag?
2: Um, usually it's the, the the like so with R&C, it was like I got to write a song about the R&C. Like that's all anyone's going to talk about today. So and then that one was probably the melody in the, I want to be at the RNC. That like probably just was the first thing. And it's always the first idea with these projects. Like I've done so much non-comedy music that I just spent yeah. years, like I would spend years writing songs. Like i write a verse in a week and then I wouldn't feel compelled to keep working on it. I'd come back two years later and then I always was switching things around and I kind of, very deliberately decided with these songs that I was just going to kind of go with the first idea and not give myself any opportunity to really like evaluate super heavily. And, um, with RNC, especially, it was like, man, this, this melody is too obvious. The song is too weird. I bet no one in my feed is going to know who Dan Bongino is. Like it was the one that I was like, I think this one is the one that I'm going to, I'm going to lose some people. And it ended up being, uh, I haven't come close to, Replicating that success (laughs) since that one, but anyways, I know I'm just on a rabbit trail here. But uh, going back to you talking about waking up in the middle of the night with my melodies in your head, I'll work on these things really late into the night when they do cross that threshold of I'm not finishing this tonight. I'm gonna have to wake up and work on this again. Um, It's funny because like I will loop a section and just be like so hyper focused on getting this one section right, and whatever that loop may be, it could end up being like. Be like Dan Bongino, be like Dan Bongino, be like Dan Bongino, be like Dan Bongino. And it'll be like an hour of just that as I'm trying to perfect whatever it is happening. And then I step away and I'm laying in bed and I cannot sleep because all I have in my head is, be like Dan Bongino, be like Dan Bongino. And that is like, I literally can't sleep when I'm working on projects because I, just because of that.
0: Um, uh, Another question I have is, is the sweatiness. (laughs) Uh, a a planned for thing? Like, is this an aesthetic choice or is this just happening naturally due to the power of your singing?
2: (laughs) You know, I would love to let that be a mystery.
0: Fair enough. (laughs) enough,
2: enough. I've already spilled the beans. I feel like Um, it's, it's definitely, you know, like I feel like I've kind of, even though his name is Nick Lutzko and it's like really hard to probably for a newcomer to decipher like what is legitimate and what is like, not it is a character and it's just a Mm -hmm. very deranged unhinged sweaty man (laughs) who um may or may not have killed his grandmother may or may not have murdered his grandma may live in some and really he may live in some stephen king type i don't know universe it might
0: be worth considering appealing directly to stephen king perhaps even in song (laughs) to help him help you solve the problem of the man in the stairs
2: right yeah that's a great pitch
0: how did you get all that shit for the spirit halloween sequel did they send it all to you
2: yeah man so it's really funny <laughs> i wrote that first one just like again with the rnc thing like it was like yeah. i woke up that day and decided to write a song with rnc that day i decided to write a song about spirit halloween like <laughs> i just went with my wife and i was pretending to get scared by all the animatronics I like had her film me getting scared by animatronics and it, I don't, it, there's no purpose to it. And because I had that, I was like, I wonder if there's like some angle that I could turn into a song. And I did. And they loved it. And they reached out and they asked me to do that second one. And then I had the idea of what if I'm throwing a Halloween party that is sh- like just me and a bunch of animatronics. And they're like, we love it. And yeah, they kind of just let me go grab them.
1: <laughs> I, so you
2: actually just went to a spirit Halloween and just loaded it up. Yeah. I actually went to like two or three. <laughs> oh
1: my god! I, I, I'm actually really jealous of that because I, I, I have some spirit Halloween animatronic oh, nice. that I purchased over the years because, uh, I like to do it up for Halloween and, uh, here, here's the thing is when I became a homeowner, the reason why I wanted to own my own house was j- specifically for Halloween night for trick or treaters. I wanted to scare nice. children. Yeah. And, and so I have a couple of them. There's one where it's a girl on a swing. It's like a little possessed girl yeah, on a swing. Yeah. And she just goes, la, 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 and her eyes light up and whatever. And she, the swing like moves on its own. Uh, I have like three or four ring doorbells. <laughs> videos of the neighborhood kids like running for their lives from this thing. And it is like one of my favorite things in the world. So I am super jealous that you got to go raid the spirit Halloween animatronics yeah.
2: and now they're just my basement is just all the more creepy because I have not disassembled them they are all just hanging out in oh, in my basement dude and- I, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get
1: shot someday because there's gonna be like a cop is gonna like there's gonna somebody's gonna be like running through backyards or something so they're gonna like yeah. neighborhood searches and they're gonna go into my my uh, garage and just because I have like multiple animatronic dead things in there and they're, they're going to fucking, yeah, this is going to be like the end of a twilight zone episode or something. I'm just going yeah, to, yeah, yeah. My, my basement has all
2: these giant like open, like windows without any like uh blinds or anything. And the Terminex guy was like, Hey, what's the story with that clown down there? And uh, <laughs> like, I didn't know where to start. I was just like, Oh, just Halloween decorations. But my, my living room was literally just filled with, those, I mean, it looked exactly like the music video, video looked for probably three weeks straight because I, of whatever clearance I needed from them, and uh, I can't remember what the holdup was, but my wife was going insane because our living room was literally just like <laughs> however many spirit Halloween animatronics. <laughs>
1: yeah, that and your your Gremlins piece spoke directly to me as like, That's hey, cool. these are <laughs> these are all all things that I love, and uh, and like like Scott was saying, you can you you wrap them up in a in a great fun melody and uh, and i also got to say i really love going back a, a, a while that you had the idea of putting alex jones's uh own words into a into a, a folk song and it oh yeah it, it is strangely amazing thank <laughs> you, you know yeah. he's got the heart of a poet is what i'm saying
2: right yes yeah unfortunately um a deranged xenophobic poet strong man in training Eric, have
1: you
0: Jones lives here in Austin. Have you ever he seen does. him like out and around?
1: Uh, a couple of times at the Alamo. He was like a, apparently a regular patron of the Alamo Draft House ba- oh, back shit. in the ba- it, this is more back before the South Lamar was turned into like the the new version when it was kind of a rundown, like yeah, outdoor yeah, yeah. I love uh, that outdoor version. mall thing. Yeah, I I miss, I miss that too where there's like the guitar center sign or whatever the fuck up there. Right. Um it, yeah, it, it was like this great kind of old Austin. That's what I think about when I think about Austin from my childhood. It was more that original South Lamar thing. Now it's all condos. Um, he's in like waking life. He's worked with Linklater, you know, yeah. he, he was like kind of colorful local personality be, before he, uh, became i mean listen he was always a crackpot there was never a time where he's like and you know he was saying back then he was always a crackpot but it was funny because he was weird and austin was weird and that was our whole whole thing and and now uh now it's not so funny anymore
2: no i had a little bit of a run-in with him when i mean not in person but when i released that song he did a really strange it was like an emergency (laughs) broadcast on a saturday night because the song was going like it was really popular on youtube and facebook and it's like, folks, this is the new, uh, what, was, what was he called? He called it the new emerging art form uh, by the great artist, Nick Lutzko. He, he tried to make spin it like I was this big Alex Jones fan that had infiltrated Super Deluxe and had written this song as a way to red pill the masses.
1: Uh-huh. And it's just
2: so funny because I feel like sane people listen to that song and it's like, yeah, dude, that that's what it is. But like, so many people in the comments I, for the longest time, I thought it's like these must be like bots that Jones made to like make himself feel big. <laughs> but like, people act like they are red pilled by that song. Like, they're like, I've I've never heard of this guy, but it sounds like he's touching on a lot of things that are really true. It's like, oh, the literal vampire pot goblins that are hobbling around us. Like, I can't even fathom how they can sit there and talk about the truth telling when he's going on about. Uh, green people that literally hide out under rocks and want to eat babies. And, and I don't know, I could go on all day, but, but yeah, I mean, he, so he called me out on that. And then he um, started liking in all of my posts on Twitter. <laughs> and um, he did a $20,000 songwriting con- or not a songwriting, a cover contest on his InfoWars website um, for whoever could submit the best cover version of that song would win $20,000. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the whole thing is very surreal. He pl- he, he still plays did it you on. His show.
1: Did you win? Did you cover your? I own? almost
2: did, but I kind of I jumped ship pretty quickly because it's such a dark place over there. Yeah, pretty pretty distasteful. Uh, come. I mean, yeah,
1: I mean, we need to to roll this back a little bit, though, because I did just book Alex Jones to come on and talk about uh, <laughs> right, yeah. talk about Firestarter. He's a huge Firestarter fan. That would be oh, the
0: nice. shortest fucking episode ever. <laughs> oh my god. So, Nick, what's your Stephen King origin story? Like, how did you first become aware of this guy as, as sort of a, a, a pop culture institution?
2: So, you know, I got to get this out of the way. I am an illiterate person in g- general. I never learned how to read. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I can not read. I just I, I really don't read. And I, I, I feel ashamed for it. I feel like I am a less enlightened person because of it. But even still, I can't think of a time that I wasn't aware of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. I guess some of my earliest memories was my dad. I think like the first, I would have been really young, maybe like four or five. And it was like, my dad talked about the original Salem's lot. And what was that? Was that a mini series or was it? Yeah. I don't yeah. Know it was a TV. Yeah. Right. TV
0: and miniseries, Yeah.
2: He, he talked about it. Like it was the scariest thing he'd ever seen, I think from his childhood. And we rented it and we watched it. And I do remember being creeped out at parts, but I also largely remember being very bored by it. I think just probably mm-hmm. because it was made in the 70s and like, I don't know what I was watching or what I was used to seeing. But, uh, very can,
1: 70s TV, for sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. I can barely remember that experience, but I do remember my dad building it up and just being so enthralled. I just loved horror and scary things as a kid and him talking about like, oh, you got to get a load of this. And like just being so excited that he was going to show me the thing that scared him more than anything when he was young. Um, And I guess uh, I really don't remember much about that other than the kid, one of the the dead brothers, I guess he's now a vampire floating into the bedroom window. Is that Mm in that kind of an iconic moment from that? I I recall that. I also remember a uh, family friend had the book it and I, and like, I remember just being, it was massive and they were like explaining like, that's the scariest thing. (laughs) You will ever like, and it just I don't know. There's like, again, I created this mythology in my head. Like, and, and I don't know how I connected all that to Stephen King. Maybe that all came later. Um, but I've seen, you know, so many of his movies and adaptations. What is hilarious about my relationship with his written work is um, when I was like in middle school and probably early high school, my mom had a subscription to Entertainment Weekly, and I would read his, uh, yeah, you know, Editorial the Pop of on- King. Yeah, I would read his editorial like every week for like five or six years. So that's that's really my relationship. Stephen King is his uh, writing and entertainment weekly and not anything else. As it's far a as one pager.
0: Way. He can get through that real. Yeah, quick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you see the new it?
2: Yes, I did. Yeah. Did you find um, it? Did you find it scary?
0: Like the first one, I guess the second one, I think we can all agree was.
2: Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the first one. I was not a fan of the second one.
0: Yeah, that was my take as well.
2: Yeah, it, just some, it almost got like too far into like Looney Tunes territory at time. Well, time. you know,
0: I was talking to somebody the other day about it and they, I, I believe it was uh, Russ Fisher, who's a colleague of ours. And he was like, well, it's a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And somehow that caused the whole thing to just click into place for me. And I rewatched it uh, after he said that and was like, this makes perfect sense as like a late stage Nightmare on Elm Street movie, yeah, you know where where Freddie is is more about like cracking jokes and you know it's it's less about the primal horror of the the first one than it is right about, you know what most slashers become over time.
2: Yeah, um, that's a good point.
0: But you clearly have point. like you know an interest in horror. You know it's threaded through yeah, your yeah, work. Definitely. Uh, what's the What's the last great horror movie you saw?
2: I was late on Mandy. I just watched. I don't know if that even really necessarily qualifies as horror, but I, I just watched that for the first time right before Halloween. I think it counts. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really good.
0: Oh, it's fucking amazing. I saw that one. I saw it like a screener of that or something. And then it, it came for like a week or two to uh, theaters in Austin. And uh, my friend and I went and saw it. And that thing on like a big screen with like a blaring sound system is just. Oh, I bet. We, 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 we had also eaten a, a fair amount of edibles before this and, and we're drinking. The only other thing I can sort of compare it to is like, if you see 2001 on the big screen, it's just meant to be like seen at that size and volume. It's a great, movie. right?
1: I saw it at uh, Sundance at, at the premiere. I went to the premiere at Sundance and I remember it, it, it Sundance is so fascinating for that kind of horror or genre thing, because the predominant audience at Sundance are hipstery hollywoody party mm-hmm. uh, people and like super rich like uh mountain mountain <laughs> utah mountain people that that love to go and you know, rub shoulders with a-list stars and stuff like i saw gaspar Noé's enter the void in the same theater oh, and, man, yeah. and, I, and i i fucking hate I, I i'm not a big fan of gaspar noise i i feel a lot of his movies are very smell your own farts kind of thing not my thing uh, but it was definitely not that audience's thing, and I ended up having more of fun counting the walkouts oh, yeah. on that, and that went from a full theater to about a third full theater uh, yeah. by the halfway mark. Uh, Mandy didn't quite have that that uh, thing because at the halfway mark, even if you don't like anything that happens before, you can't help but like just fall into it, right? Like the halfway yeah. mark of Mandy, if you made it that far, you're you're on a rocket ship to the end, and uh, yeah. And I, I, I vividly remember the Cheddar Goblin sequence, the Cheddar Goblin oh, commercial, yeah. fucking just bowling over that audience. And everybody's like, what the fuck am I watching? Right <laughs>
2: now? Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Um, I'd watched I'd watched it a couple of days before Halloween, and then I had a friend come in town and he had never seen it. I was like, oh, you should you should watch this. And it was uh, it was actually the night of Halloween. And my wife was putting on um my gremlin makeup i was a, an original gremlin called actually i'm sorry a gremlin human hybrid named desmond for halloween this year and my wife did my makeup and it probably took about an hour uh, maybe maybe closer to 45 minutes to put on but um she she started like i was face away from the tv she was face toward it doing my makeup towards the like the latter half of mandy so she jumped in wh- where nick cage is like in full like drugged out like just murdering people for a good 30 minutes whatever and she was just like I've been watching this movie for 45 minutes and I have no clue what like she missed all the plot from the front end she's literally just watching him on this drug induced rampage and she was like I have no clue what this movie is about it's like,
0: like two like, movies that, that there's yeah. you know once she once Mandy dies it becomes borderline like like a Hellraiser movie where right, Nick yeah. hunts Cenobites you know right, it's yeah, yeah. You know, before that, it's a, a very kind of gentle thing. You know, Yeah,
2: very gentle,
1: arty, floaty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hot yeah. guard thing. Yeah.
0: So the title you brought us today is The Shining, and specifically the mini series version of The Shining. I went looking when when we started talking about you coming on to do this. I went looking to find out if it was streaming anywhere. They're apparently trying to keep this thing a secret because it's not <laughs> streaming anywhere. You can only get it on DVD. If you get it on DVD, just like just the mini series, it was something like. Don't quote me on this, but I feel like I looked it up and it was like forty dollars. And I was like, "Fucking hell, man! Yeah. Like we're, we're not going to do this." But then there was like a three pack that had the The It mini series, uh, the Shining mini series. What was the third thing on that? Uh, the Rob Lowe Salem's Lot. Oh, see, I've never seen that. Had you seen the Shining mini series before?
2: No, I was There's- aware of it. I like I I had I had seen clips like on its original run, but I would have been what was it ninety eight thereabouts. So I was like seven or eight years old around then so like i do have a recollection of it like but i think that was around the time that i was becoming aware of like the actual sh- like S- stanley kubrick's shining Um mm-hmm. uh, like i had been seeing that so i think there was probably confusion but like but wait didn't they already do this and then seeing it and kind of i remember like having talks with my older brother who I, gu- I guess like was more you know he was older than me so he's more aware of like that kind of stuff and he was um Explaining the differences and how the lore of, you know, Stephen King was not happy with Stanley Kubrick's version. I don't know how he would have known all that as like a ten-year-old, eleven-year-old kid, but I remember being aware of that like forever ago. Stephen King made it pretty clear to everybody.
0: Like he yeah, was, yeah. he was not shy about uh, being critical of that one.
2: He probably ran into my older brother in the like the bathroom of a diner <laughs> and like just passed it along.
0: Just, just venting his frustrations to a nine-year-old boy in the. Yeah. slams
2: against the wall. You don't understand what it's like working with Kubrick. Uh,
0: so I assume that you must have seen the original, like the Kubrick version of The Shining, before you saw this. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, going back, like my earliest memory, I think about that was my older brother. Telling me this is so dumb that I'm reciting my older brother's memory, um, on a podcast, but like he, he, I like, I remember him talking about he was at a sleepover and the scene in the in the with the bathtub came on. And in, mm-hmm. the, in the Stanley Kubrick version, there's full frontal nudity, of course. Yeah, and um, him and his friends, they all probably were like early middle school, late elementary school, and they were like really into it, of course, like everyone. And then she turns into a terrifying corpse woman, and the kids were like terrified and, like, turned the channel and, like, haunted by that. And that stuck with me because I'm hearing that secondhand and, like, I'm confused by, like, every aspect of it, I think. I was probably
0: mm-hmm.
2: so young. But I don't, I don't remember when I actually watched it myself all the way through. I don't know if that came later. I, it just feels like something that's just always been there. I don't know. Do you have an opinion of it? Oh, I love it. Yes. Um, yeah. And I'm trying to think the last time I watched it. I definitely – have seen it multiple times. I rewatched with my wife within the last few years. And you know, it's funny because I, you know, I haven't read the book and I'm sure I would love it. I think having watched this mini series and I, I did look up like, what are the key differences between mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick's shining in the book and the mini series and all these things. And it's like, it seems like all the things that Stanley Kubrick omitted or chose to like approach differently made so much sense for, a film version of this story, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I'm biased because that was my first introduction to that story. But like seeing Stephen King's preference in the mini series, there were just so many moments that were just like I like uh, just showing Tony, for example, him yeah. being like a physical character. Like I don't know,
0: and Tony shows up looking like like early '90s Jonathan Brandis yeah. in a yeah, Gap yeah. commercial or something. You know he's wearing like, how would you describe it? like all cream colors or something, with like and, a, a button-up over. A size
1: too
2: big. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's just it's weird. Like,
2: but then the execution doesn't help either. No, no, no. Like,
0: He's floating above the ground and doing tricks, making a. Well, they a they do that. They, or
1: well, they do that thing as well with the uh, the epilogue, right, where we realize that Tony was actually grown-up Danny.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. Which is, something.
1: I don't like,
0: yeah, I don't know if I like that.
2: Yeah, and it hurts my brain to think about it. It's like, wait, what? How How does that work? Like, I, get, I would assume if Tony hadn't interfered, he he was going to kill you and your mom. So then, how did the older version of you send this message back to the younger version? Right.
0: Also, why would he be going by Tony?
2: Well, they do when he's walking across the aisle, they say, Daniel Anthony Torrance. Oh. was it, Is that in the book or was that just for the miniseries?
1: I, I think it was just for the miniseries. There definitely wasn't a graduation scene. Um, yeah. Uh, and and with Doctor Sleep, it's very inferred, very much inferred that uh, uh, Danny grows up to be the Tony for Abra, right? For the hmm. the young right. girl there. And so the inference is that Tony was a real person with the shine that was trying to warn Danny back then. And maybe I'm speaking out of school. It's been a minute since I've read Dr. Sleep. So it's very, also very possible that Tony could have just been. In, in, it could have the been Tony Soprano. Ryan. Could have been Tony Perkins.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I um, love the idea of Danny
0: being haunted by Tony Soprano. Tony <laughs> Soprano floating in midair and pointing at a sign like, your mom and dad are going to get fucking killed. You know, like <laughs> it would be a, yeah. an excellent visual.
2: That would be really good.
0: Uh Mick Garris, who who directed this, has directed a number of Stephen King properties. In fact, I think he's directed more than anyone else. Is that right, Eric?
1: I will say yes without doing any research That's on it. Uh so what do we have? We have the stand, we have sleepwalkers, we Desperation, have creation,
0: riding the bullet.
1: You know, that's something that King does. It's like he finds his people. Um, My understanding is the way King is with Josh Boone, that Josh Boone might be in that camp now. Like King just fucking loves Josh Boone. Um, And he fucking loves McGarris. He loves Mike Flanagan. He loves Frank Darabont. He's the loyal guy. You know, he just likes working with people that he likes, you know, to work with, I guess. Uh, And McGarris is definitely one of those. So the origin here is McGarris wanted... Uh, and Stephen King they they wanted to get the book version of the shining out there they wanted the counter argument to kubrick's movie and kind of viewed in that way i think it's a it's an interesting thing i'm glad that that, that project's out there and i i love that there are people that love the book that have problems with kubrick's movie that they have something you know that's more theirs you mm-hmm. know i appreciate that um i i can't it blows my mind and it happens every single time you go to Twitter right now and you say Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is really good and people will come. I like the miniseries better. There's always those people that that pop up. Uh, I don't understand it. Trying to look at those things as equal, holding up the Kubrick movie and the miniseries and saying this is a one to one comparison. Which do you prefer? I can't imagine being in the camp at all that, that chooses the miniseries. But I think when you hold it up as here's one thing that's, you know, that it's a, a, an interpretation, that's a tone focused thing. And here's another thing that's a long form, faithful adaptation of, of the book. Looking at it like that, I, I totally get it. But um, I don't know why I'm rambling here. Maybe it's your turn. You guys need to stop me talking. Nope. <laughs> I'm enjoying listening to you talk about it.
0: I was making a sandwich. So you're fun.
1: I, I appreciate that it's out there. I found it really difficult to get through when I revisited it for this uh, podcast. Some some of it's the length. Some of it's the fact that it's locked so hardcore in the time and place. They shot this at the Stanley, right? Isn't that where they? Yeah. Yeah, the, the original, which was the original inspiration for the story, uh, I think that that's really cool. But the Stanley is just like it doesn't have the same, per, you know, a personality. Uh, you know, it, it's just like an old lady hotel, right? It, everything looks is floral pattern and yeah. You know, I actually it, it doesn't have a personality.
2: I just done a trip with my wife to Colorado earlier this year, and we stayed at Stanley. And that was really my favorite part of watching this was like, there wasn't right. like maybe other than the kitchen. It's like, oh, like it's interesting because the Stanley Kubrick shining, I feel like that hotel feels so vast and right. I'm sure it's because I was just there, but it's like, you've got that main lobby, all the floors are very similar. Then you've got kind of the bar area and then kind of like, I don't know if you call it a ballroom area, but it's just kind of like a, a an event space. Yeah. The gold room. And then there's yeah. the room that Jack
0: writes in with the, the staircase. It's, you yeah, know, yeah. it's worth pointing out. The, those were all sets. You know, the exteriors for uh, the Overlook were, you know, uh, a, a hotel in Oregon, I believe. Um, but Kubrick really made it outsize. Like it's, it's enormous in the fucking movie. And you do yeah. have some of that in the miniseries.
2: Yeah, but r- I really enjoyed that aspect of like having just been there and then, you know, the whole last two thirds of it being set there was pretty cool.
0: Uh, did you have any supernatural experiences while you were at the Stanley?
2: I was electrocuted multiple times. <laughs> I think that <laughs> accounts for faulty wiring, but maybe it was a ghost trying to spook me. Who knows? Also, my toilet wouldn't work. Mm. Um, That may also be some supernatural. Uh, it,
0: it is ghoulish. Yes,
2: And the uh, the the shower, the uh, shower faucet fell off while I was in the middle of taking a shower. That was also a little spooky. That hotel yeah, did very- not
0: appreciate your presence.
2: It must have been uh, old murdered mobsters. Yeah. <laughs> so there was one, and this is so dumb and probably not even worth talking about, but it was like, I, and I can't even barely recount what it was, but we had, I don't know, we were going to dinner or something. I don't know what we were doing, but we had left and I was certain... The the blinds were closed when we were in the room and they were open from outside. Mm-hmm. And then we got back inside and they were closed again. And I think we found out that they were just like translucent. Like they, they looked like they hadn't been touched. I don't think But there was <laughs> a moment where it was a real, whoa, this is, there's something about this place. I don't know.
0: The thing I was struck by most about, and I think I have probably mentioned this on the show before, but when I went up to the, I made the pilgrimage out there at one point and, um, like if you're standing directly in front of the Stanley looking at it, like you get it. It's like, oh yeah, it's a it's a big, sort of imposing building. It's got you know, it's got that Victorian slash gingerbread look to it. But yeah, I can see how this could be scary. But then if you pivot your head in any direction to the left or right, it's surrounded by like, you know, there's a McDonald's and a gas station yeah. and, and shit like that. And it's it sort of breaks the illusion. And they did a pretty good job of like keeping that shit hidden.
2: Did you know they built a maze? What for the? In 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 front of the Stanley, there's now no. It shrub. was that wasn't there when I was there. Yeah, it's it I think it's like brand new. But it's it's funny because like it's, I don't, I'm assuming they'll grow taller. They're like shrubs. Like it was up to my <laughs> nipples.
0: It's <laughs> gonna be a, right? a liability like like thing, oh, you know, where if, if push comes to shove, you can just barrel your way through this motherfucker. You're not gonna actually die in this labyrinth.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's not big. It's nothing compared to Stanley Kubrick's, but it's obviously a, a reference to that. But I think what I was touching on earlier in like another great example other than Tony's physical presence being there was the the Hedge Monsters. That just was not. Work. And maybe that could be done really well today. Right. But
0: like I just I just don't think the Hedge Monsters are I think the Maze is a more thematically appropriate Thing totally. to have in the movie, and the hedge monsters. Even if you were doing them like now with with modern tech, I don't know how scary I would find them. I think like I I do yard work. I'll up <laughs>
2: yeah. bushes. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. like I don't think I don't. I'm not. I'm not scared of elaborate bushes. Basically.
2: There is something to the like. You turn your head and you look back, and it's face a different direction like that. Yeah, I yeah. get sure. into. But when they start moving and charging at you, like it's just like we don't ever need to see that on screen, right? That, that definitely
1: fits into the kind of Mike Flanagan style of making a, a scary scene where you can have something. It's subtle horror, right? That That is a little bit more. I can imagine a sequence in, you know, The Haunting of Hill House where, you know, there's a kind of a creepy hedge creature and, you know, the character walks around the corner to get something and comes back and the hedge creature is like fucking 10 feet closer, right. you know, and yeah. how, how that is super effective. But uh, yeah. But but yeah, you're right. It, it comes a little a little ridiculous whenever it turns into a CGI thing that just runs and attacks somebody. Right. I
0: think this is like my main beef in 2020. Like looking back on a lot of these King miniseries from the you know the early to mid 90s, is that they just didn't have the capabilities to pull this shit off. You know, it, yeah, it's network television. It's been spread over six hours. It's already you know a costly production, and now you're layering onto that a thing like animated hedge monsters or the hand of god from the stand or the fucking langoliers from the langoliers you know which the the meatballs with
1: metal teeth yeah
0: yeah, if you look at that shit now it's 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 ridiculous you know
1: it looks like a lucas arts game and
0: that stuff is really hard for me in the same way that it's hard for me to go back and play a video game that i loved like 15 years ago it's yeah. it's hard for me to like go back and watch this stuff with a modern eye and disassociate from it.
2: Yeah, and that really it, like when was Stanley Kubrick's Shining made? in this, 80, I know. Sometimes it was nineteen eighty-nine. Okay, we yeah. Shot was, it in
1: seventy-nine, came out in eighty. Yeah.
2: I I don't think there's a moment in that film that's like, oh my god, man, I gotta. You know what I mean? Like, there. And I guess that you know he's one of the all-time greatest filmmakers, and that's a huge testament.
0: Sure. I mean, there's yeah. there's no elaborate effects work in the yeah. the Kubrick Shining. It's it's more of a tonal thing. It's more of a like a you know internal thing, really, that you're seeing yes. like yeah. burst out of these people. But in yeah. my, you know, that's kind of what makes it work.
2: Yeah, and like the finale where, uh, and it's been a while since I've seen it, but Wendy is like. Uh, hysterical and either running up or down the stairs. I can't really recall. And like, she's see, she's looking in these doors and she sees the two guys and one's like in a bear costume. And it's like, you have that moment of like, wait, what? Yeah. I, I remember that. That still has stuck with me. That image. Like, and it's like almost were- like lynching that like, it's like, the, Oh yeah. But, and then, and then juxtapose that with some of the silliness, like where the guy's face is like turning into a skull and it's like really bad, like superimposed graphics. And it's like it's just it's just difficult that as as people are working on something like this, they don't recognize like, oh, man, maybe less is more like maybe we don't need to do this. You know,
0: I don't I've never talked to Mick Garris about his version of The Shining uh, or anyone involved. Well, I guess we talked to Steven Weber, but I think the the impulse was probably to do everything that the Kubrick version didn't which yeah. was be more faithful little material and also bring some of the supernatural elements more explicitly to life and like the fire hose. I don't remember how I felt about it the first time I saw it, but watching it now it's like, again, with 2020 20 eyes, it looks like a, a thing. We recorded a commentary on this last night. Uh, and Eric was saying it, it looked like something from Roger rabbit, which is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that's exactly what that thing um, yeah. looks like. I'm kind of, You know, this was 97, though. I understand that we were still in the the fledgling days of CGI, but it still feels a little half-baked, you know, the visual effects that were used to to bring this thing to life. But to loop it back around to Steven Weber, what do you think about Steven Weber's performance in this thing?
2: You know, like, great in moments and not so great in others. Just, you know, like, I I really think it's just a very inconsistent project across Mm -hmm. the board. I got really strong Patrick Bateman vibes. American Psycho was like probably just a couple of years after that. Um, and I'm wondering like how like similar in a, I don't know why I don't, has anyone else f- felt that? Like I like, it almost seemed like at times he was doing an impression of Christian Bell being deranged in American Psycho as he was starting to go crazy. Um, yeah, I, I
0: can see that. It, it didn't occur to me. I mean like American Psycho was what? 99. Two thousand somewhere in there, yeah,
2: ish. Yeah,
0: um, you know, so that followed this, but
2: so there is so an anyway, the element of it, though. You're right. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's a difficult thing to really assess because, like, I could appreciate his performance, and while also like really questioning the writing, I kind of like parts of what he's doing, but it's just like the setting is so silly, unbelievably silly that like I can't really fully appreciate what's happening. Right. When we talked to Steven Weber
0: on the show a a few months ago, he was he offered a very clear eyed take on the whole thing and wasn't shy about his criticisms and his nice things to say, whatever those are called, accolades. I don't know. I'm not good with words. But what really struck me in that conversation was that I asked him, like, was there any sense of like nervousness on your part to take on a role that was already iconic? by Jack Nicholson. And he was just like, no, not really. I didn't really think about that. And that's fucking wild to me. I can't imagine approaching something that iconic. Like what was, you know, by that time already being elevated to one of the best horror movies ever made, if not the best horror movie ever made status. And just being like, yeah, I didn't really think about it like that. That blows my fucking mind. Can you imagine You know, imagine if you got hired to play Luke Skywalker in a movie, shit. you know, and well, what did you what did you do to prepare? Like, what were you nervous about stepping into Mark Hamill's shoes? And you're just like, nah, I don't know if that informs his performance. But having heard him say that now, it's hard not to think about when I watch it. So what were your guys
2: thoughts? How do you how do you feel about it,
1: Eric? Uh, I wasn't a fan at the time. I I can remember really at the time enjoying it and uh, really enjoying the stand and really, you know, kind of getting into the Stephen King miniseries groove of that day. Um, And this Mm -hmm. one, I just think the Kubrick one looms too large. Again, like looking at it now, I appreciate the fact that there's an option out there that is more faithful to the book. But I, I think that it also is the prime example of why you can't just one to one adapt a book even in a long form thing, it's like right. they're, they're things that just don't work or they don't work cinematically. And it's a visual medium and not a, a written medium. And I think the kid who plays Danny is, is pretty terrible and i I'm hesitant to talk about it because, you know, he's a kid doing a, a performance for a TV thing. And, right. and, you know, there's, it, it, and I, I don't want to, you know, disparage him. I'm sure he was doing the best he could, but like, I just didn't connect with him the way that I, I connected with the Danny in the movie and uh, I think Steven Weber, like, I think you're right on when you said Steven Weber is kind of off and on. Um, I think when he's internalizing things, uh, he is way creepier than when he's bombastic about it and he gets kind of silly and you know, when he gets louder and, you know, screaming for the pup to take the medicine and and all that it's, it's not nearly as effective as when he's kind of glowering and he's more internal which is a good counterpoint to the Nicholson performance, where Nicholson's always at a at a ten, and I think Weber's Jack is better when he's simmering and, and lower. So yeah, I mean the the whole thing's fairly inconsistent. It's uh, you know I'm doing this podcast. I've come to have a better appreciation for Mick Garris' voice as a filmmaker. Like, I, I legit, mm-hmm. you know, came when we came back to Sleepwalkers, I legit found a, a great appreciation for that movie and for what they were going for and the tone they were going for and the silliness of it and, you know, how that was all intentional. And, and I'll always give Mick Garris credit for being the right person maybe in the wrong time to where him pushing the envelope, he could only... In the times he was in and the mediums he was in, he can only push it so far. Like if Mick Garris was coming into his own in the era of a Netflix, you know, the streaming era, uh, I think that uh, I would have less of a problem with some of the directorial uh, choices.
2: I'm sorry, Eric. When I asked what did you think of it, I meant what did you think of Stephen King's it? I wasn't. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Yeah. Hold on. Sorry. All right. I got to go delete whatever <laughs> yeah. that yeah. felt like five
1: minutes of me talking straight. We'll go ahead and delete that and uh, uh, get right on it. Um, what about you, Scott? Um, I Well, I was not
0: thrilled with it when I first saw it. I was in the midst of, this is 97. So I would have been deep in my um, angry at the world teenager phase. Very disgruntled at all times. Yeah. Not willing to give new things chances, that sort of thing. And I, I recall not liking it and rewatching it again. I, I came to have a different sort of appreciation for this. This may sound like a backhanded compliment, but I, I told both of you guys this in like DM or something while we were all watching it. But a thing I talk about a lot is this idea of ill-advised cinema. The, the difference between a bad movie and an ill-advised movie being that a bad movie is just bad in a boring way. Uh, an ill-advised movie. You're working with a project that, from the get-go, is working on a a flawed foundation. And I think that I, I sort of agree with with you, Eric, in in the sense that doing a one-for-one on this book it doesn't necessarily work. What Kubrick did, I think, streamlines it and and certainly loses a lot of the novel. And you know, as as King's reaction would suggest loses the the personal nature of that story for him but also like watching it through the eyes of somebody who appreciates these ill advised movies and and projects whatever they may be i'm thinking well right off the bat you're daring to remake the shining that's a a questionable idea and then you're doing a direct one to one on the book also a questionable idea because you know there's there's complicated and and dark subject matter in there that I don't know that benefits from being in screenplay form versus a novel. Right. And then you bring Steven Weber in to play Jack Torrance, Steven Weber to, to me at that point was the guy from wings. That guy's going to play fucking Jack Torrance. Like of, of all people, these are big swings that are, are being taken. I don't know that they're connecting and I don't, I don't think most of them do, but I'm glad this thing exists. It's it's fascinating to me as like a a case study in a movie based on a book that kind of tells the book to fuck off at a certain point versus a a hyper faithful adaptation that made with the best intentions doesn't really work. And that to me is is fascinating. And I, I found a new enjoyment in it watching it this time. And granted, I was profoundly high while I was watching it. <laughs> but I, I liked that about it. I hadn't seen it in so long that it was sort of like, I, I would forget what was coming next. And then I'd remember because of the book, and then I'd be like, oh, so it's going to be this scene. And and there's like so, some sort of fumble in each scene that that made it compelling. I was never bored watching it, and and mostly just sort of fascinated by the size of the balls that someone had to have to to do this. So I can't say that I like it, but I do respect it. I respect that it exists and um, uh, I like that it's out there. I like that I have a copy of it now that I can refer back to as sort of a counterpoint to the, uh, to the King version.
2: Yeah. And were you guys watching the same, like you get the same three part DVD? Like, how'd you guys watch this? Did you? Yeah, same. Okay. So yeah, it was three parts. And I genuinely think I might have watched it in 12 sittings. (laughs) But that said, like, I really, I always put it on late and I would fall asleep at some point. But, like, I really did genuinely enjoy it. Like, yeah, I don't think it's good, but I really did enjoy it. And I think, man, that's just a product of, like, making a TV, movie, anything in the 90s and trying your hand at, like, cutting-edge special effects. and There's, Um, it's
0: just one big swing after another.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and whether or not they're
0: connecting, like you, I I kind of feel like you have no choice, but to respect that they were like, fuck it, we're doing this. (laughs) You know, it's, it's so ballsy. Imagine if, I don't know. I don't even know if there is a, Eric, can you think of a corollary now? Like if they did something like this, like what would be the other in 2020 or 2021, if they, right made a mini series version of a classic King movie, what would it even be?
1: Maybe one of the serious ones, like a Shawshank or something, and it just yeah, but the problem with that is that both Shawshank and Stand By Me and Misery, they're all very faithful uh to the to the text. Um you know, the, the biggest thing that Misery does different is they, they tweak the end just a little bit and you know she completely cuts off his foot instead of oh, you know, sorry, just breaks his ankle. And- yeah so so it's it's tough to it's tough to say like what what would be the the thing that that is good but not the not the book really i i don't know if there's another exact one-to-one for king yeah and you're up against kubrick i mean right
0: right. like any any uh, you know comparison you can find the other end of it does not involve stanley kubrick i mean i can't even fucking imagine doing this Mick Garris's balls must be the size of watermelons. He must have to cart them <laughs> around in a goddamn wheelbarrow. And I'm sure he was, like, you know, emboldened by the fact that King wrote the script.
1: Also, well, not just wrote the script, but was producing, was like their, it was like their project together where they were, right. like, sitting next to each other behind the monitor for the whole fucking thing.
2: And you know what? This is probably very dumb for me to even bring up, because it's the loosest of threads connecting things, but it maybe feels like the closest thing I can think of to someone taking such a an iconic work, and then you know mm-hmm. uh, it, it is totally different. But um that I haven't even watched it. But the the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, ratchet thing that Netflix just did. Mm. Have you, you guys watch that?
0: You know what? That's actually a very good comparison. I have not watched it. Just out of like principle, I'm not watching that shit. Yeah,
2: right. that's, I kind of get the same vibes there, where it's like, like I I literally was thinking to myself, like, okay, who is like the. T- I don't know. I was trying to think of like iconic cinema and then like, who would be like the, the TV movie guy today. And I, Ryan Murphy was the first person to come to mind. Right? So yeah. He literally right. just,
0: I do One. not, I do not care for that guy's stuff. I have tried so many fucking times and there's not a single thing that
2: I've seen that I'm like, and there was like probably six or seven years where I somehow convinced myself to do a reset on American horror story mm-hmm. where it, I started <laughs> off really enjoying the first season, but really, probably lost interest like three or four episodes in every new season. Like the first episode would be like, you know what? I think he may be onto something here. Mm-hmm. And then I, it was the same disappointment. I finally wise up and I just don't watch it anymore. But well, that's yeah. the
0: thing with all Ryan Murphy shit. It's it's that emperor has no clothes thing. Like it starts mm-hmm. off and it's like, bang, here it is. And, and it's it's sort of a bold idea. And like, you know, the cast is sexy and it's shot. It, you know, it's a gorgeous show. But then three or four episodes in, it starts going off the rails. And by the end of it, there's like aliens involved and there's a mummy and some shit like, (laughs) and you realize like they didn't know what they were fucking doing.
2: Right. Exactly. It's like they all these questions you're really excited to see answered. And then by like episode four, you realize, Oh, they have no interest in ever, ever attempting to even, they're just going to keep asking more questions until we forget what we're even doing. And then yeah, aliens (laughs) will turn up. (laughs) Totally. But, but the the every season always
1: ends with like a banger like an emotional payoff or something that and you're like oh
2: like american it's always horror
1: story? yeah it's always like a really great first episode uh and then a whole bunch of bullshit you're like i don't even know why i'm still watching the show and then the last couple episodes there's always something there to go oh wow that's a really cool thing and yeah. th- that's my my feeling although i've only watched like a uh, two or three seasons of american i've never, never
0: story. made it that far into a season of american horror story As soon as I sense the cart going off the fucking track, I'm like, all right, I'm, you know, (laughs) my wife watches it, you know, so it's on in the house. And there's been times where I'll sit and watch or I'll sit and fuck around on my phone while there's an episode happening nearby, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, And, you know, my memory of any attempts I've made in in this sense are kind of dim, but I know that every time I've tried to watch Ryan Murphy stuff, there comes a specific point where I look up at the screen and I'm like, yeah, this is a bad idea. Like whatever is going on here is, is ridiculous. And they're, they're just going with it. I admire that's another thing where I'm like, I, I admire the fucking go, go for broke attitude going on here, but right. Like this, this shit is ridiculous. And then most of what I hear about American horror story on like social media, it's this exact same thing. Only it's played out over months you know people start watching it and They're like oh this season's sitting in an abandoned hospital or some shit and then you know five episodes in you know you see in the feed you're like i don't know if they know what they're doing here and then seven episodes in it's like man this show fucking sucks and then by the end of it, people are like i can't believe that i invested my life and time in this and then the next season starts and it's like Oh, new season of American Horror yeah. Story. Like, like they got good now. Now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they forget all the shit that happened to them year in and year out. Like, yeah. if you're in a fucking abusive relationship, you got to recognize that shit, man. <laughs> yeah.
2: I have another thought that I wanted to mention to you guys. You guys, oh, yeah. I think, are a little bit older than me. But are you guys familiar with the um, early 90s uh, Little Rascals? This kid yes. played Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: I never saw that movie, but...
2: Okay, yeah. Ahead. Well, one of the little rascals is named Uh-huh. And I'm sorry, th- this kid in this in in The Shining is named Bug Hall? That's the actor's name? No, no, the kid who played uh, Alfalfa
1: in the 90s
2: oh, little rascal. Okay, my bad. Uh, yeah. Do we know the name of the little kid in, in The Shining? Uh, 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 IMDB does. Cortland Mead. That's Cortland it. Cortland Mead.
0: Mead. That's it. Yes.
2: He played a kid... He played one of the little rascals named Uh huh, and in that movie, his the only thing he could say was Uh huh, and so like I watched that movie a lot when I was a little kid, and that character, all he said was Uh huh, Uh huh. Probably says it like I don't know half a dozen times throughout the movie, and he kept doing it in this movie or in this miniseries, <laughs> and I don't know, if it like an deliberate like nod back to the Little Rascals film that he had just done because he looks virtually the same. It must have been like back to back kind of shoots i don't know sure but i would that really like i thought that was pretty funny every time he did that because i was like man that seems very intentional but maybe not (laughs) i guess uh uh-huh is a very you know universal phrase but scott i think maybe you thought i was going uh a different direction with that that and please go there like let's 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 drop that piece of information i was very interested in where like if this guy was still around because like like i said he was in little rascals he was in this i feel like i remember him maybe being in a few other things when i was a kid but like I was just interested in checking in to see like what he's doing today. And I could find no evidence of what he's doing other than a private Instagram account, Cortland Mead. It says professional Hollywood actor in the bio. And then the next thing is hashtag where we go one, we go all. <laughs> and then a bunch of like very Q and on. <laughs> so, so he's the, saving the children uh, is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm lucky, man, maybe he has some, some Intel, man, who knows? He's
0: trying to free the little rascals. That's 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 <laughs> exactly. what he's doing these days. The fact that the kid from The Shining turned out to be like a QAnon supporter is just an outstanding piece of trivia. You know? Yeah, yeah.
2: I think we may be the only people aware of it on the planet.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of people are about to be aware of it when they hear this, but but it is fucking wild. Like it's wild when you get these like former stars that like, like I was surprised to hear like Christy Swanson is is like a hardcore fucking Trump supporter. And I mean, I guess Scott Bayo's not a, a much of a surprise. That guy's been a douche from the beginning, but yeah, it's, it's weird to see people aging into reprehensible people, you know, yeah. like people that you would not want to, you, you wouldn't want to be in a room with. Uh, I, I find that really compelling. Like when that shit happens way more yeah. interesting than if he just got like hooked on blow And crashed a car in LA and maybe killed (laughs) someone or something. Like, we all know that story, you know. But a QAnon supporter, there's a certain mindset that goes into that. That's, I just, I was, I thought it was so funny when you sent me that screen (laughs) cap. I think I just said, oh no. Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) Uh uh huh. Oh no. (laughs) No, uh huh. But the, the account is private. And like his profile picture isn't like, I think maybe he's wearing sunglasses and he's got a hat, a MAGA hat on. And like, I'm not 100% certain that it's this kid, but at the same time, his name is Cortland Mead and it says professional Hollywood actor. Like, it's, yeah, it's gotta be him. It's gotta be him. Yeah.
0: Very quickly, one thing we did not touch upon in uh, this episode is uh, Rebecca de performances Mm -hmm. as Wendy. I, I think she's more authentic to the Wendy in the novel. I like that she's, sort of an ass kicker in, in this in a way that Shelly Duvall isn't in the shining, but also I find Shelly Duvall's performance more appealing. I like that, that version of yeah. where, you know, she's just afraid nerve on two legs. Rebecca De Mornay is more strong and capable. And that, Again, it's, it's very accurate to the book. She goes through some of the emotions that Shelley Duvall's version of Wendy does. But in the book, I think that Wendy is a, a more capable person. And uh, I think she's really good in it.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I, th- I think um, ha- having not read the book, but having heard Stephen King's gripes, I know that's a high one that he thought that um, the way that Stanley Kubrick portrayed that character was like, did he say sexist or misogynist and that like she just didn't. Really, he called up. her, I
0: read an interview once where he called her a shrieking dish rag, oh wow, which is you know uh putting a pretty fine point on it, also, I think it's pretty unfair. I think that's the intention of that version of of Wendy
2: for sure, and I, I think they're clearly two very different portrayals, oh yeah, I can get why it bothers him because he wrote it a spef- specific way, but I really like it. I don't think it hurts the story so much that. She's not blonde in <laughs> the other one, and and right. talks. Right. I don't know. I here
1: is here is the difference. Maker is I couldn't fucking tell you one. And I've watched this yeah a few months ago. I watched it a few months ago. The miniseries. Um, I couldn't tell you one fucking moment that she has. She is more consistent, but she's more forgettable in the role. As much shit as Shelley Duvall has caught over the years, from you know, from critics, from uh, you know, cinephiles, whatever, for her, her over-the-top performance, there's not one thing that Rebecca De Mornay does in the miniseries that comes close to the reaction Shelley Duvall has when Jack Torrance is axing down the door. Yeah, in, in the Kubrick version where I just believe yeah. that this woman is terrified for she's scared out of her mind that she is, you know, in this desperate situation and is selling this moment. Rebecca de Mornay is very capable in the part. She's, you know, strong, but she's forgettable. That's, that's the, that's the main problem with, with it is that there's, there's very little personality I feel in this movie. And, and, um, and, and that bums me out because I think when Mick Garris is at his, his strongest as a storyteller, that is what, I mean, you say what you will about sleepwalkers. That movie has personality fucking coming out of its ass, For right? Sure. It's like that, that movie is just all over the place and wanting to entertain you. And and this, I, I think the biggest sin that the shining miniseries is, is it's just kind of dull. It, it is there to do one single job and that's to be a, an answer to the Kubrick version. And, uh, uh, Be Stephen King's take on how to tell the story right, and that's 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 about it.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I will point out that it does have one leg up on Kubrick's version in that it has Elliot Gould in it. And you put yeah, true. you put Elliot Gould in anything, I'm there. That's like right. you're starting at a B plus letter grade at worst. Right. You know, with an Elliot Gould performance. It's also got Pat Hingle, who showed up in. uh Maximum Overdrive, as I noted on that episode, kids love Pat oh, Engel. <laughs> um, Melvin Van yeah. is is Dick Halloran. You know these are yeah. these are strong character actors. Miguel Ferrer has a, has a has
2: a part in this. They threw a lot at this thing. They really. I- I really love Dick Halloran's uh, kind of Sanford and son-esque reactions to the shine when he was at that diner. Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) He almost fell over a couple of times, like holding this heart, like, Oh, and everyone's like, what's going on, man? (laughs) Really appreciated those moments. All right. Do y'all have any final thoughts on this thing? I don't think so. No,
1: man, I'm done.
0: All right. (laughs) Nick, what are you working on right now? Like this is usually the part in the show where we, let people tease whatever their whatever they've got coming up. This is gonna air probably a month from now, so
2: Gremlins Three, baby, Donna Desmond. <laughs> <laughs> Yay.
0: Gotta get Joe Dante involved.
2: Mm-hmm. I shot him an email, man. I haven't heard anything back. He did, he reached out when I did that song. He was a fan. He liked it.
1: Oh, no, no, that's awesome.
2: Yeah. Him and uh Zach Galligan. Billy Braggs. Oh,
0: oh nice. That's rad as hell.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, I've had you, a lot of strange, um, like, I don't know what the word for it is. It, I'll do a song, like, Spirit is a good example. Like, I'll do a song about Spirit Halloween, and Spirit Halloween reaches out. And I did the Gremlin song, and Joe Dante reached out. Nick is the only thing I can't get to, like, return my calls. Hmm. And no, no Jeff Bezos? No, yeah, no, no Jeff Bezos, yeah. Or band Gino. He's also the big one that is never acknowledged in any way that I'm aware of. Hurtful
0: and cruel, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, yeah, we, well, we do
1: insist that you do a Stephen King song uh, or King
2: cast yeah. song. It's really funny because I've created this. Uh, I, I I posted this guy's YouTube comment on Twitter and like he basically takes these songs that I've been doing over the past few months and he like, is the first person that I've seen write in like a coherent linear fashion, like the kind of the tail- mythology of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, maybe I shouldn't be broadcasting this, but like, I'm not thinking that hard about this. <laughs> like, I sit down to write a song, and I'm like, oh, I could work this in here. I don't have any great, uh, like I like, and now here it is. It's all built up to this. You know, my grandma is potent- she's missing. I'm potentially guilty of murder, and I don't know what I don't know what's next. That's that's for to find out. Maybe I need to write a song that Stephen King can help me write an ending to this, all right? Uh, that well that's that's an idea i i do think though
0: that that guy i know exactly who you're talking about that commenter and i read through that thing that's exactly what i thought you know like with if someone had forced me to sit down and write out like what the mythology of these videos were or was i I don't know how to talk it would have been exactly that like that's that's my understanding of the the storyline thus far um it's interesting then you have no fucking idea where this is going. But um that makes it more fun, in my opinion. Like
2: Yeah. You yeah, know. I could just be saying that, man. I may have like 15 years worth of this mapped out and this <laughs> is part of the plan. So
0: let's Go Vault.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, we look forward to whatever you do next, and we really appreciate you taking the time to uh sit and talk to us about this uh this miniseries.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Many thanks to Nick for joining us for that very spirited episode. You see what I did there, Scott? Spirited.
2: I did. The hotel has
0: spirits in it. Both booze and ghosts. I I was so delighted to talk to that guy. I just love his work. If you're not familiar with Nick already, uh, please go follow him on Twitter at at Nick Lutzko. Everything he's doing makes me happy. And I think it'll make you happy, too. What's in the chamber for next week,
1: Vespy? All right. Next week, we will be going on the run with the McGee family and finally tackling Stephen King's Firestarter. Our guest is a returning guest. You've heard her somewhere on the show before. Is that cryptic enough? I think that's cryptic. Ah, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> could mean everything, could mean nothing. You don't know. This is the <laughs> game, folks. Learn to play. What we can say is that her horror bona fides are top notch and she knows her Stephen King shit inside and out. True. True, true. And what's happening on our Patreon this Friday, Scott?
0: Oh, well, (laughs) this will be sort of a rowdy episode, I imagine. I have made mention on this podcast on a a few occasions about the uh, Dark Tower junket that myself and six or seven other journalists went on back before that movie hit theaters. The full version of the story, though, is quite entertaining. If I do say so myself, we've brought in two of the other people that were there that day, Haley Fouch of Collider and Sean O'Connell from cinema blend. He's also the author of an upcoming book about the Snyder cut, which I certainly intend to ask him about.
1: All right. So I guess we'll see you guys, uh, our patrons. We'll see them on Friday for the bonus episode, digging deep into that dark tower junket. And, uh, next week, we will see you in the main feed for Firestarter. In the meantime, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, at KingCast19. That's it, folks. You'll have a great week. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tierra Ansley and Abi Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly.